We're in a series we've entitled The End of the World According to Jesus. It's really an exposition of Matthew 24 and 25. That's all we're doing. And uh, in 24 and 25, Jesus spends a little bit of time, some time giving us a sense of what to expect with regards to the end of the world uh, or the end. And then he spends a fair amount of time on how we ought to be in light of that. This morning we're at the end of what to expect. So I'm going to do a little bit of, by way of summary. Um, but let me offer this, this tool. If I, one of my hopes is, is that we gain a little, a little bit more confidence as a church handling prof- prophetic scripture. Maybe that you, my hope would be to, you know, if, when we have the chance to do this, that we might be equipped so that it's not always so alien to us. But here's a way of thinking about uh, prophecy. Um, <clears throat> if a child is, let's say they're playing with their Legos or maybe they're coloring, um, a young child, you know, six years old, uh, makes a fire engine out of Legos or writes a story about their dog Sam and they come to you, look what I did. You know, they have this gleeful sense of accomplishment about them. And as a parent, you, you, we love those moments uh, to see what the kid's done. If it's your first or only child, you really love those moments and you take pictures. If they're the subsequent children, check. Good job. Uh, but you really appreciate those moments where they build, they, they make something. Um, there's that phase for children where they can't, they don't have the the ability to make, and so they're little destroyers. You know, so you do the building and they do the wrecking. I love getting to the other side of that, where they do the building and then you get to do the admiring. It's important in the life of a child. Well, the child m- makes this thing. Now, this thing that they made was done in a spirit of recreation, though for them they had a great sense of purpose. If you'd peered in to see little Tommy build his fire engine, you know, he'd be biting his tongue, yeah. He's working, dead set, hard at work to make this fire engine. He was at work in play to do it. So for the child, there's certainly a sense of profound purpose in the moment of making this thing or or writing this thing. But in the grand scheme of things, it's really quite trivial. The Lego, it will not endure. Neither the thing they drew or the thing they made will endure. It will eventually get thrown away or disassembled. But it sets a pattern for how we are. Because once again, when they get a little older and they get into middle school, they will, uh, the same sort of thing will happen. Only this time, the thing that they do is a a little bit more significance. So the child might learn how to bounce a soccer ball on their foot or play an instrument. And you go to the first recitals where they play the letter E 35 times. And then C, E, E, right? And you go and you suffer through the recital or T-ball and you tell yourself you'll never do T-ball again. Whatever it is, there's that, that next level of accomplishment that happens. But it's the same, the same things are at work. Really, it's no different. It's just the accomplishment's a little bit more respectable. And then they get to high school and now the accomplishments are, again, that much more respectable appreciable maybe, 
it's still just as temporary in the grand scheme of things, but it feels a little more enduring in the moment. You know, so the child, the, the, the person, the kid, the young adult is not playing an instrument anymore. They're playing an instrument alongside of another person simultaneously playing a dis- different instrument, and it works. It makes a song with harmony, and, and it's a real accomplishment. You know, or uh, they're, they win some award, or they achieve some level of success in a sport. There's this this greater sense of accomplishment, and it doesn't stop there. Right? The pattern continues through adulthood. You go into college, and you begin, you up the level. You go to a new place where the things you work on have a greater degree of impact. You get a job based upon your performance in college. I mean, all of those things, that's, that's real, right? And you become an adult, and you know, maybe you're working on a product line of something and you get, you're driving down the road and you see it on a billboard. I mean, that would be cool. Or on a Google ad. It's probably more to the point. Or you heal somebody. You're a doctor and you heal somebody. In the grand scheme of things, it is just as passing. But in the moment, it's, it's different. And then there may be for some of some people here those times when you realize this is this is why God made me like to do this. Like in all those the all those iterations of making and purpose and accomplishment and purpose and accomplishment, they were for small purposes, but you finally get to this is it. This is this is what I am. Well, that idea is true in some ways with regards to prophecy. Oftentimes when the Lord speaks a word through the prophet, it, it plays itself out among the immediate audience, the hearers of the spoken word. It, that prophecy will play itself out among those people in a real but limited way. Very real, but somewhat limited. What I mean to say is, is God has a bigger idea in mind that may take place farther down the road, but is be, it's beyond the capacity of those people to really even grasp. They don't have enough around them. They don't have enough. They're not holding on to enough for them to fully comprehend all that God is going to do. But God will make it so that enough of it happens here that it's real for them. I'll give you an example. In Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah says to King Ahaz, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child and his name shall be Emmanuel. Now we know what that means. I mean, that's Jesus. The church embraces that passage as a prophetic word for Jesus. We clearly look back at that. Clearly, every Christmas... Every church around looks back and sees that as God is thinking of the Christ. But for the people then, I don't think they knew that. And God saw it important to fulfill it in a small way then so that those people would appreciate it. So do you know in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, a prophetess conceived and gave birth to a son? The very next chapter, Isaiah is careful to point out that in some way, in a small, 
playroomy sort of way it happened. But on the whole, in the long sense, there's a greater happening that's going to happen. That often happens. That often happens with prophecy. So in Ezekiel 37, the Lord says to Ezekiel, tell me, O son of man, can these dry bones live? Man, that is, the the church knows what that is. That's speaking of the resurrected Christ and of all of our hope in that, that these dry bones will really live one day. Right now, they're only partially alive, but one day the Lord will breathe new life and we will be resurrected. Now the church sees that. For Ezekiel, it was Babylon. It was the Jewish people coming back out of exile and going home. There was this immediate but limited fulfillment in the time of which it was spoken. That is a common principle of of a prophetic word. One reason is because what good would a prophet be if he had all of these prophecies, but his audience never saw any of it fulfilled? You would call him a false prophet. Or you would call him worthless. The prophet has to be able to validate his, the, the authenticity of his word on the people who are recording it. Otherwise, they won't record it. So that's one of the reasons why this is done. I want to say that in front of this morning because as we summarize the first half of chapter 24, my sense is that we probably hold this chapter best if we appreciate that that's taking place. And what I mean to say is, at some point this morning, I'm going to ask you to put on, like, imagine if you had spectacles, where, by bifocals. And if you looked underneath the spectacles, you were looking at the scripture through the eyes of someone in AD 70, the, the generation of, of the scripture. And if you looked over the bifocals, you were, you, you were just yourself. Okay? I want to do that this morning, because I want... I want us to appreciate that in verse 34, when Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will, will not pass away until these things have taken place, these things take place, that they're, they're very likely, even though we look at some of these things and go, that cannot have been the fullest meaning. That can't be the fulfillment because there's a fuller fulfillment coming. There's a grander sense. But in their minds and in their worlds and in their perspective, it could have been very real and very valid. So that, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do two things this morning. We're going to spend most of our time just walking through the scripture, trying to get an understanding of it. And then we're going to stop and transition to what's the purpose of this? Why would the Lord give us prophecy about the end? He doesn't give us a lot of prophecy. We don't get prophecy very often from the Lord. Why do we get it here? And why is, it, why is it in one hand so revealing and in the other one still so disclosing of what it, you know. So the Lord gives us this prophetic word. He says, this is what it will be like. But do you notice here the irony that the signs he points out, he says at the same time, but don't be led astray about these signs. It's not it. It's ironic. You're going to see this, but don't, but then you're going to see that, but don't bite off on that. And then that's going to happen, but yeah, that's not it either. But it's going to be kind of like that. Good luck with you. That is the kind of this, that's not the spirit of the text, but it's the challenge that we get when we, we get this, is we see the kinds of things it's going to be like, but then the continual warning not to bite off on something. 
Why, why would the Lord do that? Why would it be so important that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have, have this same account? John is given the revelation. He, he wins. I mean, so why is it that important? What's the purpose? So we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to look at the purpose. Okay. With that said, I want to go right up to the top of the chapter. And I want to be, give a careful summary of how this all went down. Leading into 24, the Christ had uh, been at the temple, and things had not gone well, and Jesus had rejected the temple and the religious ceremony that was happening within it. The Lord had accused the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of having been delinquents and wicked in their behavior, and it, it, the climax is with him leaving the temple. Now, he's not simply walking out of the temple. If you see his Jesus as the fulfilled temple of God, Jesus, his personhood, is actually being the life of God in the temple, leaving the temple. What's happening is God is leaving this building as an empty shell, a worthless, empty building. It's a, it's, the building is now vacant. No matter how many people you stuff into it, the temple is vacant. That's the way you should see that Christ's departure from the temple. Well, as he's doing that, the disciples are missing, I, th- I think they're missing the point. And so they are caught up with the majesty of the temple and the associated buildings. So in their mind, they've got this glorious sensation about being around the temple and all of what the buildings seem to mean to them when Jesus, what the buildings really mean, when the meaning of the buildings, right, if Christ himself is leaving the temple, he's ultimately leaving the Jewish faith as a ritual. He's leaving it behind. He's saying, if you cannot see me in this, then this is empty. And the disciples are missing that. So Jesus, in verse 20, chapter 24, verse 2, makes a very provocative statement. He draws them in because they have a wrong mindset. So he's drawing them in to fix something. He says to them, you see all these, do not, do not. He's pointing at the buildings, the temple. He says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So these very buildings about which there's all this admiration, he's saying they're gone. I'm telling you, not one of these stones will be left on another. Which proffers from the disciples, in verse 3, some private questions. They come to him privately later and they say, tell us, when will these things be? Speaking about the temple, when will these things be? And then there are other questions. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And from there on ensues Jesus Christ's conversation. So what we have here, and again, this is in summary, is from verse 4 to verse 8, our Lord warns the disciples that a time will come when many people will be led astray by false teaching and false signs. He says there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be caught up in that. Don't be alarmed. Nation will rise against nation, but relax about it. There'll be teachers and false teachers, but don't be led astray. Okay, so... There's this first, Jesus begins to describe 
They say, when will this happen? And Jesus says, well, this is going to happen. This season where people can be led astray and misled. He says, but that's not it. And then in verse 9 to 14, he describes another season. He, it ramps up. It goes from simply being a time when people can be led astray to a time of hardship and persecution where people will fall away. It actually gets acutely difficult for the Christian. People will be hated because of, of Christ's name. That's what he says in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And 9 through 14 talks about that. Which you would imagine thinking, and then? He says, no. And then 15 through 28, it goes one step deeper into what we would call a, a, a grave tribulation, a time of tribulation. Phrases like the abomination of desolation in verse 15, which which the prophet Daniel spoke about, which is that, per, is that a person? Is that an antichrist? Is that uh, the, the man of sin, the lawless one, which is how it's spoken of in Thessalonians? It begins to talk about peculiar, very prophetic ideas, bad, all bad news to the church. It gets extremely difficult. So that in verse 22, he says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So at first, it's a season where people can be led astray. And then it's a season of difficulty where people fall away. And then I guess you would say it's a season where people pass away, right? People are actually dying here. And then we get to the 29th verse. where it gets difficult, especially if you're wearing your spectacles, your bifocals, and you're trying to understand, well, when's the temple going to be destroyed? It's almost, it might feel as though maybe the Lord didn't even, isn't even talking about the temple. Or maybe you, in these next verses you have to fit the temple. Let me read 29 through, I'll read 29 through 35. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man <clears throat> and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these, all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We give a little attention to verse 35. There's nothing cosmic being said there. That's the way Jesus emphasizes the teaching. So it's, a, it's expression. It's an expression to give credence to the word, not to actually talk about the destruction of heaven or anything like that. But 
So if you're living during this time, if you're a, a follower of Jesus during this during the time of Christ, 30 A.D., 40 A.D., 50 A.D., 60 A.D., 70 A.D., you're, and your questions, it's like the disciples, their questions were regarding the demise of the temple. In fact, Jesus, remember, Jesus broached the issue about the temple. He's the one who said the temple's going to be destroyed. And their line of questioning comes because of his provocative statement. So if that's your interest, what you observe is, you observe it's going to be a misleading time, and then it's going to be a difficult time, and then it's going to be an extremely severe period of time. And during that period of time, it'll be so bad that the return of Christ will be the sole desire. That's what it sounds like, is that when things get really, really bad in severe tribulation, people's only hope is that Jesus would come. That's the only kind of reprieve or relief or desire that they would have. And, and even there, the Lord's saying, listen, don't bite off on it. Don't be misled by it. You're going to hear people say the Messiah's come. You'll know when I've come, is kind of the, his, his answer. And then you get to 29 through 31, which in our ears, I think, sound like the return of Christ. Sounds, I, sounds like the return of Christ to me which would be fine, except that nothing was ever said about the temple. And then you get to 34, and it says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these take place. Uh, what I'm trying to do is show you a little bit of difficulty. If you're looking under the, the bifocals in AD 70, everything is pretty hunky-dory until you get to 29, and you're like, hmm, what is, what is the meaning of that? But then you get to 34, and you're like, it's going to happen in my lifetime. And if you look over your bifocals and you have the sense that what this is, this writing is a pattern, it's a pattern of the end, right? This is how in other books, like in Revelation and other areas, this is how the Lord talks about the end, is this, is this increasing period of tribulation until a time of great severity and then, then the Christ will return. So if that's the pattern, which we know is the pattern, and you look here, it's, you're very at home. You're very at home in these writings. You're very at home looking here. What's difficult is verse 34, which says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Because you're like, well, if this is the return of Christ, and that generation has passed away, what do I do? Do you, you see the challenge? Somebody, somebody nod? Okay. Okay, good. <clears throat> Here's... I want to offer a few ways that the church has reconciled this. I, I think this is a hard place. I think, um, but I think these, these, are, these are some good answers. One, the early church, and I mean the church uh, 200 AD, 300 AD, 400 AD. So they're after this generation, but they're holding on to the scripture with a pretty good sense of what's happened how, what did they think? I found myself curious about that. What did they think? Because if they thought it was untrue, this word would not have survived. Somehow the early church must have thought that this had all taken place because it remains with us. The church continued to grow. So what do they think? Oftentimes their perspective is that when Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, that the things taking place have to do with the tribulation. In other words, that all the things have taken place for Christ to come. Okay, so in other words, they don't extend that idea to the return of Christ, but 
that, in other words, the things that have to take place are the conditional things, the, the things of condition on the earth that must take place so that Christ can come. Christ is kind of the, the, on the other side of the equal sign. Okay? That's one way of appreciating this is, in which if you look here, then the early church would have no trouble saying, well, it's all taking place. Christ can come at any time. Another way of appreciating this is uh, to be a little more sensitive to the language. Uh, 20, verse 29, for example, that is almost a direct quotation from Isaiah. But Matthew writes in a very a Hebrew way, but, but he's almost quoting, uh, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 13 here. In other words, in, in Isaiah 13, the expectation is not actually that the sun falls and the stars fall and the moon doesn't give light. That's an expression, it was a Hebrew expression to talk about a cataclysmic alteration of history, kind of a watershed moment when things would never be the same. There'll come a day when you, things will never be the same. These times when you, you kind of, a Pearl Harbor day, a 9-11 day, uh, a, a day when, when it would boggle the mind that something is taking place because you never would have thought in a million years it would happen. That's how it's being used in Isaiah. In Isaiah, he's talking about the Babylonian Empire, which is this mighty empire, this indomitable, invincible army that's sweeping across the Levant in the, in the Middle East, and, and they're powerful beyond, beyond their, the time frame, beyond what they could conceive. And Isaiah is using it to say, in a moment, they'll be snuffed out. In a moment, they'll be taken over. And that's when he uses this phrase. In a similar way, you can imagine, just like the temple, which is so permanent, huge stones and this, one, this wonder of the Mediterranean and all of this, it's, it's almost as though, you can imagine, if you were thinking with their eyes and thinking with their minds and hearts, maybe, maybe when, when they get here, they, maybe they see the destruction of the temple in 29 through 31. Maybe the early church, and I mean the very early church, you saw this, this 29 to 31 is describing the great validation and vindication of Jesus. So imagine, imagine you're a young follower of Jesus, you're a Jew, you're living in Jerusalem, and you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with your friends and family. So that when the Day of Atonement comes, and they go to the temple to make sacrifice, and you don't go to the temple to make sacrifice, you say, I don't go because Jesus Christ is my sacrifice. And I, I can make atonement for my sins through Christ at any moment. I have a ready and wanting mediator who will meet with me and meet with the Lord and make things fine. That the day of atonement, that Christ is the fulfillment of the day of atonement. That's why I don't go to the day of atonement, but they go off to the temple. And then when the Passover comes and they go off to the temple to make sacrifice and they say, why don't you go to make sacrifice? They say, I don't make sacrifice because Christ is my Passover lamb that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross is what atones, is what covers my sins so that when the Lord, when the angel of death comes by, he passes over me. I don't need to go to the temple because Christ is that for me. And then you begin to say things like, you begin to say the words that you heard Jesus say, like tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. You say Jesus is the fuller fulfillment of the temple. So I never go to the temple. Now, you, imagine you saying that. Imagine you trying to carefully witness and carefully sow the word of truth into your Jewish family and friends. And then in 68 AD, the Romans show up and they surround the city and they put a blockade on it. 
And all this time, you've been saying to them, the temple is an obstruction to the full gospel of Jesus Christ. All this time, you've been saying that Jesus Christ alone is our temple. He is our sacrifice. He's our only one. But they keep leaning on this. And one day, the Romans walk in and knock it down to the ground. Now, to the Jew, what a loss. To the follower of Christ, what a validation. You would be like, I have been And I mean, in a loving way, I don't mean like told you so. I mean, like, this is it. How can you, how can you deny the supremacy of Jesus Christ? Because some building that you thought was interminably permanent is laid waste. The building that you thought God had placed his blessing over is gone. And that God told me it would be gone and it's gone. In my lifetime, in my generation, I have these very words. We've been saying it day after day in the synagogues, in the temple courts. We've been trying to tell you it's gone and now it's gone. Jesus is the temple. You feel the vindication? You could preach it. Like, when, if, I think if we could be there and climb into that, we could say, 29 to 31, that those people, those people would say, accomplished. In a small way. Big way to them. Big way, a valid way for them, kind of like a child, fire engine out of Legos. I don't mean that they're being juvenile. I mean that their perspective is limited. Their perspective has to do with Jerusalem and the temple and those sorts of things. And I think in that, in that small local environment, those people at the destruction of the temple might have gone all the way to 31 and said, holy cow, it has all happened. We, looking back, say, yeah, but it sounds like it's going to happen in a fuller way. There's a, there is a tone in this writing. The mood, even, of the scriptures changes as it goes on. So it starts off, don't be led astray. It starts off, then it talks about persecution. Then it begins to talk about the Antichrist or the abomination of desolation. Then it says things like this. For there, then there will be, this is verse 21, a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Well, that sounds big. And when we get to 29 to 31, we don't see the momentary vindication of Christ over the physical temple. We see the eternal vindication of Christ, the vindication of the Christ. He's here riding on the clouds. When he ascended in Acts, he said, I'm coming back the same way. That's what we see. And I think there is an even-handedness in the church to, with prophecy, especially with prophecy that validates itself in a limited and unique way among the hearers, there needs to be an even-handed of the church to appreciate how that might have been how they might have seen it and how they might have understood it because it was said to them. But also, what is God really trying to ultimately say? Which 
which brings us to purpose. What is he trying to say? Well, for one, I would say the return of Christ is imminent. That's one thing that can be said. If, if we see the basic teachings of the scriptures having been validated, even in a small way, you need to say, well, then I suppose they're validated. But then what you see in history is some of these things get revalidated in a slightly larger way, just like I talked about a kid growing up. Right? They, it's done again, and the church sees it and goes, wow, we thought we knew it, what that was before. Look at now. A good example is verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, in A.D. 50 and A.D. 60, when Paul writes Romans, he says in Romans 1.8, the whole world is heard. Now, we kind of chuckle at that because we're like, whole world. Belize didn't hear. America didn't hear. It was, it was valid in their thinking. He says in Colossians 1.6 that the, the word of God is bearing fruit across the whole world. Acts 1.8, Luke writes, and you will be my witness, Christ says, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's the thesis of the book, so that by the time you get to Acts 28, you're like, wow, it's reached the ends of the earth. So there's a sense in a small way that it's valid there, but it's a sense that since then, how much more of the world has heard about Jesus? How much more? We do the same thing. You can go on any, any website right now and find out that Ebola, Ebola virus is a world epidemic. It's not really. There's like six countries. I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm trying to say we do the same thing. A lot of people in this world that don't have Ebola right now. Lots. I mean, 99.9999s don't have it. But we don't bat an eye calling it a world epidemic right now. Why? Because of our, it's caught our attention. It's almost like the sun refuses to shine, the stars. So there's a sense that's in one of the ways, I mean, think of the reasons. Why does God do this? Why does God do it small and then it might happen again in a sort of way and it might happen again in a sort of way and again and again, all on the way to the time. It's heading towards the end. But one of the reasons I think he does that is because he keeps the church ever aware of the potential imminent return of Jesus which makes it healthy for the church. Be ready. Very soon, when we talk about how we ought to be next week and the next several weeks, be ready is the theme. Every generation thinks they're the last generation. The generation above me, you know, they had World War I and World War II and the nuclear bomb. Man, communism... I mean, they were, many of you are from there. You remember, everybody was sure they were the last, well, people talked as though they were, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Now, the generation, like, starting at my nose and down, kind of chuckles, like, ah, this wasn't the end. Jesus isn't coming. That's because, yeah, you give a bowl of six months and we'll be saying the same thing. I'm just saying how fickle we are. And, and the Lord wants us to be watchful of these things. Why? To keep the church ready. Because the nature of your faith has everything to do with your relationship with God. And being mindful that things may get hard, things may get really hard, but God is in it, is really important to our faith. 
Which brings me to the second idea, the second purpose. I think the main reason the Lord is giving this to us is to let us know that in hardship, he has not failed. That when we see the world spiraling out of control in our eyes, when we see it spiraling out of control in our eyes, we know this, it's on the way to victory. The worse it gets, the closer victory is to us. Do you see how close victory is? It's just on the other side of cataclysmic peril. God puts the victory of Jesus adjacent to cataclysmic peril. And he tells the church, you have to go through this. He tells the Christian, your faith must be the kind of enduring faith that will not be led astray or fall away, but will endure. That's the teaching. What kind of faith what kind of faith do you have? Is it prone to be led astray? Is it the kind of faith that um, believes there's a God but cannot reconcile hardship? Ooh. I mean, put the apocalypse aside. Hardship is common to us all. It will not, it will not weather even your own life. You know, there's a sense that the church and the world is heading, right, heading to meet the Lord but we all have our own individual apocalypses when we die along the way. So you're going to meet Jesus. You'll have your own apocalypse where you suffer and die and meet Christ. Can your faith weather the mortality of all that or the mortality of your loved ones? Is your faith, I'm pointing out some of the negatives, and then we'll talk about what it ought to be, but is your faith anchored around uh, kind of the prosperous hopes you have in life? You know, so you see God has plans, and this is the danger of daily breads and that sort of thing sometimes, is they have so many wonderful verses. You should read the rest of the chapter on some of those. You know, I mean, so plans to prosper you comes out of Jeremiah. It's like the three nice verses in the whole book. Uh, plans to prosper you. You know, I used to have inside my, my class ring, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what's written there, right? It was almost, I now look back and go, that was self-help gospel. Like I was empowering myself. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I find that the more I do that way, I'm doing it for him, about him, solely with him in mind. Before it was, I was co-opting this prosperity truth to my dreams. I want to do that, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like it was a wonder power. That's not the intention. If that's your faith, it will be led astray, or it will fall away. God wants, he doesn't want a, a prize now Christian. He wants a prize patient Christian. He doesn't want a Christian who gets whipped up about Jesus to sprint 30 feet. 
He wants one who runs the long race. Long race. Long-suffering. Enduring Christian. Steady faith. Anchored faith. Real faith. That's what the Lord is trying to grow in us. He's saying to the church, listen, you marvel on the buildings. You marvel. You have this great sense of earthly temporal victory about you. He says, calm down, disciples. Let me tell you, I'm the temple. I'm the only thing you should want. Everything else will fall away. Is that not his gospel message? He who wants to be my disciple must forsake everything and follow me. That I himself take up his cross and follow me. Does that not follow in the voices of the apostles who have forsaken all things for Jesus Christ? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Do you not see that consistent, deeply sowed theme in the description of faith among, among the writers, the apostles, the disciples, and the teachings of Christ? Nothing else can matter but Jesus. It would be dangerous if our hope of getting into heaven is that our faith is not caught by the end of the world. My sense is the Lord will see it which is why he wants the imminence of his return to always be in front of us. Be ready. Be ready. What's the nature of your faith? Uh, I've I've thought, and I'll I'll close with this, I've been trying to think of, it's so hard to go, well, would my faith survive like a persecuted interrogation where they wanted me to deny? I can't do all that drama. So then I've been like, well, so where do I find encouragement? Where do I find hope about my faith? How do I grade my faith? And I find the more and more I go along, the more content I am with Jesus. I just love Jesus. And maybe, maybe not as well as I should, but I think that's the right path. Big fan of Jesus. Like when I need forgiveness, God forgives me. And I really like that. And when I need hope, Christ is my hope. It doesn't even need to be circumstantial. Now, one day I'll fail. Right? You're going to watch as a church one day where, where I'm some lame Christian because I'm daunted. But the reality is, as God hasn't failed, I've failed. Right? And we'll get back up. But relationship with Jesus. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you like God? Do you want him? Because then, the beauty is, if we walk in this generally good life right now, stripped away of needing all these other things, then they can be taken away and we don't lose them. And that makes us ready for whatever end the Lord calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray you'd make us ready, steady followers, always mindful of the imminence of your return. Lord, I pray that you would pierce us with your spirit, expose falsehood in our own lives, maybe ways that we have material hopes and desires that we've labeled Christian. We could put those away, Lord, and just be more and more content with you. That we could see our jobs as things you've given us for the time being to feed or to help people or to share the gospel or to be grateful for work, but that our identity would be in you, or that you'd show us that family, as valuable as they are, are really your family, your children, and that you own them. You'd take them. 
Give us a sense, Lord, that things are in your hands. And make us travel light while we wait. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.